Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. This is season six, episode two. And today we are talking to John Mark Comer. We're going to kick off this series on the fruit of the spirit. And well, because he wrote this really popular book, maybe you've read it, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. We're going to be starting off with the fruit of patience or another way of talking about patience is long suffering. So we're right off the bat, we're not doing any of these fruit in order because eh, it's more fun to do them out of order. First up, patience with John Mark Comer. We're going to be talking about things like how can we be more patient in this digital instant culture and what is the virtue of long suffering in the life of a Christian. So thanks so much to Compassion Canada and our new sponsor Waybase for making this possible. I can't wait to tell you more about them and uh, really want you to discover these amazing organizations, the inspiring work they're doing that you can get involved in. And so I'm going to talk about that later in the episode. But if you don't know John Mark, he's been the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon for many years now. He's uh, really grown it with the help of, of course, a whole team into a really vibrant community. It's got a focus on spiritual formation. And so Part of what he's been doing with spiritual formation actually has led him to step down from that role of lead because he's been doing that for a long, long time. And he's going to be leading something called Practicing the Way. It's a ministry of work and writing and courses that are all about spiritual formation and discipleship. And he wants it then to be used and available to lots of Christian communities and lots of churches, not just the one that he's been based out of. So not just his own in Portland. So John Mark, you're going to find him intelligent. He's well read. He's slow to speak and quick actually to be pretty cautious of the digital world and what it has brought to us as Christians, especially when we think about the fruit of patience. So you're going to love this conversation with John Mark Comer. Here we go. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to season six. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, such thing as patience when you have a phone it <laughs> habituates you toward impatience so well let's just, let's why don't we dive in enough of the preamble uh say more about that um what is the phone doing why are we why is it why is there no space for patience on a on your phone well i mean i think we have to back up and just recognize the obvious that sometimes we can't see for the forest for the trees that your phone is not just a tool or a device, as we would call it. It's not just doing things for you, you know, texting your friends, checking an email from your boss, promoting something on Instagram or posting a picture of your cat or whatever. It's not doing things, just doing things for you. It's also doing something to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true at some level of all habits from, you know, going to the grocery store to drinking coffee in the morning to watching Netflix at night or running All of the habits, they habituate us, they shape our inner woman or man, what the biblical writers call our heart, which is that kind of nexus of our thinking and our feeling and our our wanting or our desire. They shape that inner fulcrum of us, which then um, over many, many years is like the what we would call character, which is the kind of basic disposition of your inner person, you know, as 
psychologists and doctors say, at first you have a choice, eventually you have a character. Mm. And that's because, you know, we make our choices and then our choices eventually have this cumulative effect. It feels so small. I'm just choosing to criticize my spouse, or I'm just, you know, choosing to read the news three times a day, or I'm just choosing to spend 30 minutes a day on Instagram. But we forget all of these habits do something to us. They shape us and they make us either more free or more in bondage to fear or narcissism or ego or materialism or greed or anxiety or any number of things. They, they form our inner world, which then becomes our outer world. It becomes who we live from the inside out. It becomes who we are. So the phone is, is most likely a kind of, um, you know, junk drawer and rally point for some of the most formative habits or what the ancients called the habitas of our life in the modern world. And so text messaging does something to you. Emailing on your phone does something to you. Social media is literally designed for people. For, <laughs> it is literally designed to shape who you are, shape how you think, shape what you value, how you feel. People forget that social media is not social media. It is mass behavioral apparatus. Mm. It is designed. You are not the customer when you go to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. You did not pay money for this. You are the product. What is being sold is not what you see on there. You are what's being sold. Your attention at first and then your addiction to that device and then behavior modification through very sophisticated algorithms designed less by software designers and more by behavioral economics who economists who literally want to shape who you are and shape what you think and shape what you value and shape how you live in the world. So all that to say, the phone in general and social media, the news and apps in particular are designed to form us. And we just have to ask in what way, not in all bad ways, um, but they are designed to form us. And, you know, if you have a value for patience, which, you know, it's interesting in Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, in his like kind of poem slash description of love, the first qualifier there is love is patient. Yeah. And of course, the old King James, old English translated that word as long suffering. And that's what patience is. It's the capacity to suffer at peace and well and with joy over a long period of time. Um, the phone obliterates or at least at least seriously detracts from, if not decimates, our capacity for patience because it fills up all of those little moments where normally we'd be habituated toward coming back to our body, back to the moment, back to the person in front of us through this this gift that we've lost in a generation called boredom. It habituates us to fill up every second of every day with something to do, something to think about, something to distract us. And it just the, – the phone is so lightning quick. Now the shift to – I just got the new iPhone, the shift to 5G on good Wi-Fi. I mean you just – everything is so fast. The world is not just at your fingertips. It is like a millisecond away, something that's like has to go through outer space and come from yeah. the other side of the world. I can get in less time than it takes me to blink my eye. The problem is then I, I that that habituates my body to expect that speed from my spouse or my children or the person I'm talking to or God or prayer or my own growth as a person. Are you talking about prayer? Prayer does not happen well 
in like a couple seconds here or even a couple minutes there. Most people would say prayer takes a long time just to like calm down enough to even pray, yeah. you know? So when you were habituated to everything fast, everything quick, everything easy, and all of a sudden the best things in life, character and relationships and God are slow and hard. We have this massive disconnect because we're being formed by our phones toward quick and easy when the best stuff is all slow and hard. There are I guess that's my that's my little take. There are on it. so there's so many good nuggets in what you just said, so many things to, to lean into. Um you know, one of the things that immediately makes me think, you know, that idea that that philosophy that says we shape our tools and then in turn they shape us. Um, yes. Um, in what ways are you seeing that level of speed, addiction, impatience? I'm going to use the word impatience because that's the fo- you know the theme of today. We're talking about the word patience. Uh, where do you yeah. see that in the church? Uh, I, that's a broad statement. Church, all churches look so different. But um, what are maybe some of your concerns with the you know general evangelical direction right now how is the tool shaping us when we could be using it as a tool instead the tool is shaping us the the evangelical church hmm let me be careful how i say <laughs> this you know one of the best things and one of the worst things that's happening across the church in the west in my generation and i mean that in the broadest kind of sense from gen z up to gen x is a widespread move around social justice. And I think Jesus is at work in this, and I think the enemy is at work in this too. Mm. And um, it's obvious the ways that Jesus is at work in this, in particular caring for those in the margins of our society and outside the halls of privilege that people like myself, and I'm guessing you at some level, have come up through. But it's less obvious often the ways that the enemy is at work trying to sabotage what Jesus is trying to do. And, you know, there's a there's a gross caricature of social justice that has been interpreted to mean getting really mad and screaming at people on Instagram every time something bad happens. Yeah. And I'm afraid I I just uh, by any by the most generous definition of doing justice, it's really hard for me to even see that qualifying at all. Um, Most of the work of justice that I'm familiar with uh, is slow. It's quiet. It's behind the scenes. It's hard work. Takes place over years, not seconds. And we're at serious risk of disobeying the command of James chapter one. Let every person be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. Hmm. Social media in particular habituates us, and the the digital news cycle habituates us. It forms us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and quick to become angry. (laughs) The exact opposite of the the life of Christ, you know? People love to point to, like, you know, angry Jesus and the millennials. Love to point to angry Jesus in the temple driving out the, you know— with his whip of cords, driving out the money lenders and, uh, you know, beating back religious corruption and political corruption and speaking truth to power, as millennials would say. And we could talk about how ridiculous that statement is. But um, what we forget is that Jesus had been to that temple likely hundreds of times from his youngest years. And he did that at the very end of his ministry. A number of New Testament theologians and historians like N.T. Wright would say it was a deliberate act 
that he did at the end because he knew it would get him killed. Hmm. And they would argue that's the primary, that was the instant, that was the event that got him arrested and killed. That was the, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back. And Jesus was more than intelligent enough to know you go into that, you mess with power, you mess with the economic system, the political system, the racial system, you're going to get killed for doing that. So he did that at the end, but and and there's even that line in you know Mark's version of the story where he comes in after the triumphal entry and he goes to the temple and he says, looking at he looked around at everything, and then he went back out to Bethany and he slept. So the point is that like temple rage moment where Jesus is overturning tables and has the whip and he's driving the money changers out. That is not a, this is horrible, fly off the handle, angry Jesus moment. That is a deliberate, considered act. It was premeditated. It would have been prayed over with great drops of blood, Hmm. you know. It was thought about. It was a lifetime building. He had been there dozens, if not hundreds of times, had seen this corruption over and over. And he made a deliberate, conscious choice to pour out his wrath on this injustice. And that's exactly what it was. And corruption. That's not how most of us do anger. (laughs) You know what I mean? Most of our anger is like a fly off the handle. It's, you know, we're innocent, they're, they're evil, it's us versus them, binary thinking, it's oversimplified, you know. So I think we're at risk of falling prey to direct disobedience to James' command to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I think our anger is often more of a, of a fragile ego, kind of pretentious, contemptuous Anger, not a Jesus kind of anger in the temple. That's really about other people and doing justice, not about us. And I think because of that, um, we're also habituated toward simplistic, ideologically based, non-in-depth, thoughtful, nuanced thinking about complex issues, whether it's of justice or human sexuality or power or leadership or anything. And, And, you know... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm talking no, too much. Oh, My point I, is, I mean, people are here, to, talk, here to, to listen to you. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me let me stop talking. Preachers you never ask a preacher a leading question. We're habituated by by the phone to think in slogans and hashtags, mm. and no good thinking for the most part does that way. No slogan is like true at a metaphysical level if it's short. It's why proverbs people don't realize that. Proverbs was one of the main books that almost didn't get include, included in the canonization of Scripture. And that's because if you read Proverbs as general principles, it's true. If you read it as promises from God, it's apt, it's patently untrue. Right. Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they're not, they will not depart from it. If you read that as a promise from God or as a metaphysical statement for all people for all time, that is just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, we could all point to many wonderful parents who have children that have gone hostile toward God. As a general rule, yes, if you were to break down statistically, as a general rule, if you train children up in the way that when they're old, they will not depart from it. But it's not a promise and it's not a metaphysical principle. And so the same is true with kind of any short, pithy statement, you know. So I think we're losing the capacity for righteous anger, for listening, and as a depth, as a result, for kind of thinking about these complex issues of the day, which are very complex. I mean, the complexity of the world right now is so, so, so much. Um, You know, we're losing the capacity to even have intelligent, kind, humble, thoughtful, in-depth conversations, whether it's about, you know, 
immigration reform or, you know, social welfare or human sexuality or race or whatever. And this is an incredibly, this is a big threat, not just to the church, it's a big threat to democracy. We have to have the capacity Mm. to think slowly and deeply and well about Mm. the complexity and the ambiguity of the human condition. I guess, well, the place, I've (laughs) over-talked. I will, it's so good. I will work harder to listen better. No, (laughs) no, people are here to listen to you. I get to do this every week. But, But the thing I was going to interrupt you about, which we can land in now, is what you're talking about sounds so we need the ability the time the space to have these thoughtful conversations i mean in some ways nothing's new under the sun uh each generation has felt most people didn't have the luxury of time and space uh to do a lot of things you know with i think we all thought with more technology we'd have more time but of course that hasn't been how it has gone you write about some of these issues i uh, i'd love if you could yes. teach us um there's a a little bit you talk about about when the first clock went up in germany in a city i'd love you to tell us a little bit about that if you remember it but but this idea sounds very i guess say luxurious because it sounds like the privilege of certain kinds of people who who which we are no doubt faster than we've ever been less um, patient in our time than ever. But wouldn't you say too, though, that this has kind of been the human condition that we always are wanting more and faster. And most of us don't have the time uh, to give to the long suffering. (laughs) We want the fast thing. Yeah. Hmm. I think yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, Yes, patience is contrary to human nature. Otherwise, it wouldn't be commanded in the Bible. You don't command something that is just natural and we all do anyway. Thou shalt you know? eat a second bowl um, of ice cream. Yeah, no problem. Exactly. It's not commanded. Thou shalt sleep. But you know what I mean? Things that we just do naturally and don't require any maturity um, or discipleship are not commanded and held up You know, as something to work toward and partner with Jesus toward. So for sure... Yes. None of us, I mean, humans avoid suffering Yeah. and, um, and suffering is inevitable and therefore the call to patience, to long suffering. So I think that is, is universal to the human experience across gender, class, ethnicity, continent, generation, era. But I don't think that the habituation toward faster, better, more, the extreme pace of life is a human phenomenon. At some, I mean, at some level, yes. You could read the garden story as an attempt. One way of reading that that Tim Mackey and others have is as like an attempt to transgress the limitations of our humanity, to become like God, try to step outside of this kind of in this ordered cosmos with creator and creation and humans as intermediaries between the two and rulers or image bearers of God in this garden with boundaries, you could read that as an attempt to kind of transgress our human limitations. And that's so much of what we're experiencing and everything from postmodern gender theory to the myth of the frontier to what we call cyberspace to uh, the decimation of the indigenous people in North America and both of our countries. Behind this is this human attempt to be more than human, to transgress our limitations, to kind of imagine as this, there's the infinite, you know, space, the final frontier, you know, you can just trace that in my country and yours, you can just trace that, you know, what sociologists call the frontier myth straight through, you know, colonization of the Eastern seaboard, 
through the pioneers and the destruction of the indigenous people, through capitalism, through the internet, through the inner world and the new age movement of uh, you know the 1960s through the space race and now into postmodern gender theory and sexuality. Like all of this shares this this attempt to transgress our humanity, our embodied nature. Don't let I won't even let even my body tell me what to do, mm. much less somebody else tell me what to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna like the whole world's my blank canvas to paint my life upon as I see. So some of that, yeah, I think is human, but there is a profound shift. Like one of the things I write about in the book is how in the past the sign of privilege was leisure. Mm. So if you were, you know, an aristocrat in England 200 years ago, or even if you were a, a wealthy, you know, I don't know, New Yorker with a house in the Hamptons 100 years ago, the sign that you were from privilege and status and means was, you know, you wearing a, you know, leisure outfit by the pool or, you know, yachting and drinking white wine at 1230 on a Tuesday afternoon, <laughs> you know, or the images, even in early advertising um, of the wealthy were images of leisure. Mm. Now there's been a significant shift toward what, you know, some journalists have called workism. Work has become, a career has become a, a quasi-religion in the West for middle-class people and up. Not for all, but for, not for the working class, but for middle-class people, for knowledge workers, for professionals. And, and with that, you know, now the sign of status is not how much downtime you have, but how busy you are. So if you just look at advertising now for luxury items, whether it's cars or watches or purses, now they show people, you know, in a board meeting in a Manhattan sky rack, you know, skyscraper or driving through traffic in a busy street or going out clubbing at one in the morning or, you know, or starting a business at a WeWork space or whatever. Luxury items are now marketed to people for whom busyness overload is a sign of status mm. in our culture. So, you know, when you ask people, how are you? One of the most common things that people say is I'm good, but busy. I'm busy. And busy is a kind of status symbol. If we were to say, I'm good, but you know, I'm just kind of bored right now because I don't really have anything to do and not that many people want to hang out with me and I'm not really needed for that many things. <laughs> we would never say that even if it's true because that would we, that would be humiliating to yeah. a, a Western middle-class person that, you know what I mean, that I'm not so in demand that I'm chronically busy. So what does that say about it? Like that's, that's a new, I don't think that's mm. a human phenomenon. I think that is a acute the last 50, 60 years in North American culture in particular. So, so yeah, some of it I think is human and ancient and some of it is more new and more kind of market-based and culture-based. I want to introduce you and talk to you about our new sponsor, Waybase, waybase.com. It's bringing the church together for good. I've had the opportunity to work with them over the last number of months, months, and it's been really amazing to see how they're helping people in your ministry connect together for a greater difference through Waybase. There's ways to find new opportunities for impact at waybase.com. You can understand your community, but get better. They have these rich reports and understanding. They 
they have mapped out the church in Canada, every denomination, all ministries, all things that Christians are doing across the country. And we're talking about over 30,000 organizations across the country who are working together. I really want you to go to waybase.com, sign up and claim your listing. There may already be one for your organization, for your church, for the ministry that you're part of. And we want you to claim your listing so you can be connected to the work of Christians across the country. Start researching your community, start checking out what's going on and start collaborating. Actually, very recently, for the first time, perhaps ever, all of the prison ministries in Canada were able to get together because Waybase brought them together for good. Just think about the kind of collaboration that that could be across the country when finally, or finally, or very rarely have these organizations been able to communicate, been able to meaningfully have connection with one another, been able to even know that each other exist. And now through the power of waybase.com, they've been able to do that. So go to waybase.com, claim your listing, we're bringing the church together for good. The link's down in the show notes. And either way, the marketing, you know, agencies and whoever, it is in some way this back to this idea of the other translation of patience, long suffering. Uh, it can, yes. it's about relief of suffering. So in the old days, the relief of, you know, you were a status symbol that you didn't have to suffer through hard manual labor. You could enjoy leisure. You had a nice relaxing life. Now it's, we're going to reduce your suffering. You feel strained. So we're going to get you in a fast car between locations in an, or, you mm-hmm. know, a nice, I don't know, a nice watch to tell the time or whatever it is. There's so many of these products, but it's, it is the, yes. the, the pitch is always there is a pain you have. We will relieve this. We will relieve this pain. We will relieve your suffering. Well, most people's, most middle class Western people's suffering is psychological, not material. Mm. So you know what I mean. I don't suffer from hunger. Mm-hmm. I've never been hungry in my life that it wasn't my own decision or poor planning. You know, <laughs> I don't suffer from cold. I don't suffer, you know, we still suffer from disease, but I don't str- suffer from malnutrition or lack of access to medicine. Many people do. I, I'm very aware that's not everyone in the West experience. So please hear me very clearly. But for many of us, and the, if you're listening to a podcast, like the stats on podcast listeners are, are very convincing. The type of people that listen to podcasts are people of privilege. So the average podcast listener makes, you know, over $75,000 a year and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of assuming that if somebody's yeah. listening, they're probably not the type of people that are hungry and cold and suffering from malnutrition. They got a few right other now. things to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So most of our, but that doesn't mean we don't suffer. Most of our suffering is psychological from stress, anxiety, fragile identities in the secular age, relational pain. There's certain things that no app, no pill no technology, no amount of wealth will ever erase human suffering. And what people don't realize is that often these functions of, of materialism and privilege actually increased certain types of psychological suffering, um, which is so hard for Western people. To, like Western people can't figure out why we're less happy than we were in the 1950s. And you know who's even more less happy is women, which is bizarre hmm. because the last, you know, 70 years have been a trajectory of female empowerment and, and fits and starts. But women are less happy now than they were in the 1950s when supposedly everybody was miserable. So that just doesn't compute because it doesn't fit into our Western kind of view of justice and equality and, you know, all these things. Like I'm not not speaking against female equality or empowerment. I'm I'm saying there's something deeper here. It didn't solve the deeper issue. 
it didn't solve these deeper problems. And for some people, it made it worse. And the Westerners just can't fathom this because our whole world is built around unlimited options. And what we don't realize is that in previous societies, what Charles Taylor's would call a culture of authority, what Byung Chul Han would call an honor culture, you know, your identity and kind of role was handed to you by your gender, by your class, and you would accrue social capital um, by basically filling your role well, being a good mom or dad or son or daughter or chief or pastor or blacksmith or farmer. You had a role to play in the community. You had way less freedom, way less options, way less, you know, choice. And, and many people found that stifling and constricting. But what people don't realize is now that we have way more choice options, we can kind of be whatever we want, do whatever we want. It's actually not true, but that's the myth that we're sold. And we can be able to do a lot more than we used to be able to do. You know, we can pick our career. We can pick what kind of gender role we want to fit into. We can decide if we want to have kids or not. We have so many more choices. What people don't realize is that comes with overwhelming anxiety is the byproduct of that because you have to find yourself, discover yourself, be yourself, defend yourself, justify yourself, perform yourself. And it comes with choice anxiety. And now social status is accrued not by being a good person in your role in the community, but by accumulating things like career success, education, money, followers on social media. It's all performative. Mm. And so – I'm not trying to moralize it and say that the past was better than the present at all. And very few of us want to go back to rigid gender roles or whatever. But people have a hard time realizing that more freedom does not necessarily make us happier. It often makes us just more anxious and confused. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a balance there. You know, in the Genesis typology, there's a balance between order and chaos. And you see that in a lot of ancient religions. And I think Westerners struggle to realize there's a balance between freedom of choice and commitment. We want things like intimacy, love, acceptance, meaning, formation, character. But those things all require constraints and commitments to form and forge us into those types of people. And so there is a tension and a healthy balance between, you know, there's, there's too much constriction when yeah. we feel oppressed and too much freedom where we just feel anxious out of note. And I think right now the pendulum has swung very Crazy far anxious. for a lot of, not all people, a lot of people to too much freedom. The result is widespread mental illness and anxiety. And anger too, you know, the, you know, on the day we're recording here, but just pick any week, probably whenever people are listening to this, there's something going on in the news that is an injustice yes. and people are, you know, absolutely angry about it and um, anxious and angry and going to the streets and going to the internet with their feelings. Um, But there's something here, obviously, whether it's pandemic and social unrest and the latest news story, however significant that may be this week that you're listening, uh, there is something for us in this. So the fruit of the spirit is long suffering. When the spirit is producing something in us that is good, it's this long suffering ability. Um, what, what do you think we need to know about suffering or what happens for us there? Well, I mean, gosh, there's a lot you could say there, but I, I don't think it's an oversimplification to say that suffering is the primary means by which we become 
we become people of loving character. Mm. Um, and suffering is painful and we all avoid it like the plague. And I'm not saying that's bad, but we're avoiding the primary mechanism for our growth into people of wisdom and compassion and humility and strength and endurance and above all, love is the overarching virtue there. And my logic there is, you know, um, as a, as a good book I read and it's very theologically determinist or Calvinist. So I disagree with that theological piece of the book, but the, the basic premise was stunning. It's called, um, don't waste your sorrows. And the basic premise is that the highest goal and good in life is to become people of love through union with Mm -hmm. Jesus. Love as defined by Jesus is, to will the good of another ahead of your own. Meaning love, by definition, is not desire or feeling as it is in kind of pop culture. It's sacrifice and self-giving. Third, all sacrifice and self-giving is a form of suffering. Ergo, all love is a form of suffering. Mm. Suffering, love. Suffering and love are kind of two different words for the same thing at some point, right? We suffer because of what we love, and we love often, and the result is we suffer. So love, whether it be loving somebody by giving them our attention or money or resources or touching their pain or sitting in their pain with them or or letting ourselves be interrupted by our children or whatever it is, this is all a, a – it might be very minor, but it's all a form of, of, of suffering and of sacrifice and of giving to another. Therefore, suffering – is the primary way that we are formed and trained and schooled to become people of love. People who our basic disposition is to give, to serve, to sacrifice, not out of a begrudging obligation or guilt, but out of a genuine compassion and delight in the goodness of another soul ahead of our own. Mm. So what we lose when we design an entire apparatus an industry around avoiding suffering is we lose the greatest invitations that most of us ever receive to be forged into people of love. Mm. Well, and not just the whole, you know, the industry of let me help you, the advertising industry, the sales industry, it's in the church too, you know, this, this, um, mimicking or mirroring of let us relieve your suffering. Let's the best is yet to come is this classic phrase. The best is yet to come. What what horrible. Yes. If you mean like in a kingdom coming when Jesus returns, you know, when all things are, you know, behold, they make all things new. And if by best you mean. Christ-like character, yeah. not wealth and yes. health and prosperity yes. and everything going well. And yeah. no, then yes, the best is yet to <laughs> you know, come. Uh, in my oh. own, you know, to be personal for a second about it, uh, in my own life, a metrics, a matrix or metric I use to measure some of this type of teaching. I have a dad who's long suffering with a long-term disease and illness. And oh, uh, wow. just to say that, if it doesn't preach and is it, if it isn't true for him also, then how can it be yes. true? Um, so, you know, the yes. best is yet to come. Well, actually like it's only going to get worse for him and for us who care for him. That's the truth. So what does that sentence mean when you say it? It doesn't actually help unless yes. you have, I guess, like a much, you know, larger, as we've said, larger view of what best means and what's coming, etc. But, but I guess what I'm trying to get at when we think about the, the, the fruit of the spirit, I think that in many cases, rightly so, there have been 
more and more people, it feels like more than probably are actually doing it, but this deconstruction, this, I look at the fruit of this organization, this church, this, whether my local church that I've been a part of, or the whole industry of church, uh, I look at it and I feel like there's a lot of rotten fruit here. This isn't the fruit of the spirit. This seems to be something else. And I'm out. Yeah. I'm done. I've deconstructed. <laughs> I've taken it apart and I want nothing to do with it. And, you know, to many, I'm sure you know many yourself in your community, in your own personal life. You know, it's painful to see this happening uh, to, with people I love around me. And, and, and I, I hear and appreciate a lot of their concern. But I guess what... The other side of that, then, if the fruit was rotten, what can we invite people into? Yeah. You know, I mean, you're you're you've got a whole thing that you're doing with teaching and a movement around discipleship. But uh, what kind of good fruit can we offer to people? Uh, you know, if we were to reconstruct instead of just deconstruct, um, you yeah. know, what what is it that we can offer to people um, of Jesus today? Well, I mean, first off, I, I would just agree with you. And I would not say deconstruct or reconstruct. Mm. I would say deconstruct, then reconstruct. Right. And, you know, I mean, think about my context. I am a youngish pastor in one of the most far left, progressive, secular, hostile to Jesus and church cities in all of North America. So that's my context. So please, I'm not coming from Southern Bible Belt or whatever. So in my so for me deconstruction is just like pain in my heart, right? Um, so there's so few churches around here to even have a bad experience with, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. So and most of the churches here are, are very healthy and thriving. But the first thing that must be said about deconstruction is there's a type of deconstruction that is not only good; it's the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But you know. It's the deconstruction of the Old Testament prophets who were railing against religious corruption, hypocrisy, abuse of the poor, abuse of power, if you want to put it that way. It's the deconstruction of Jesus driving the temple changer, you know, the money changers out of the temple and rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's the deconstruction of John the Baptist. It's the deconstruction of Paul. It's the deconstruction of Arrhenius and the saints and the early apologists. It's the deconstruction of Martin Luther and the reformers. It's the deconstruction of the, of the Quakers and the Anabap early Anabaptist movement, you know, that kind of deconstruction where you're, you're basically calling the church to be who she actually is. Yeah. You know, you're calling us back to the teachings of scripture, to the way of Jesus, to the heart of God. And that is a kind of deconstruction that every generation must do, you know, and um, much of what we're living through right now is the fallout of kind of the church in North America, you could say broadly since World War II, the shift to what is a very truncated gospel since a, about that era, the kind of Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you can go to heaven with you die when you die, if you come forward and pray this prayer, that kind of extraordinarily truncated simplification of the gospel of Jesus. Um, and that's been simplification is probably a pretty generous word for that. And, you know, the rise of the megachurch. I'm not against large churches. There's megachurch that's a size of church, and there's a megachurch as a way of doing church that's kind of personality-centric and Sunday-centered and consumer-driven by programming. And that has just created an entire generation with a, a very low discipleship culture, 
with what Bonhoeffer, who saw this in the 1940s as a major threat and called it cheap grace, mm-hmm. and which is now, I, I think, all over the place. His warning was not heeded, for the most part, by the Western church. And so it's created this whole generation that has very little robust discipleship in their muscle memory, very little even robust intellectual kind of view of faith and orthodoxy, very low view of kind of death to self, the cross as the central vehicle for spiritual formation. And uh, and it's really sad. So there's a massive deconstruction going on right now. And the first thing you have to say is, yes, a lot of this stuff should be deconstru- deconstructed. You know, people in power abusing it or misogyny toward women or bad theology or truncated gospels or racism that the church at, at, at least tolerated, you know, um, or segregation. I mean, this this is stuff that's sinful and evil where the world has crept in and perverted the teachings mm. of Christ, the writings of the New Testament, the heart of God and needs to be deconstructed in love. Um, but that's probably not the type of deconstruction you're really referring to. No, it, it quickly is. Yeah, elides it is. from yeah. that, you know. Rotten. Yeah, it's and rotten that we need stuff. To affirm yeah. it. and it's rotten stuff. And so then we just need a how do we deal with rotten stuff in a Christ-like way with humility, recognizing that. And this is where most, I think, millennials need a, a serious dose of self-awareness, that most of the stuff that we're angry about exists in us, mm. not just in the people that we're mad at. And maybe the only reason we're not the ones in the hot seat is because we're not in that position of power or leadership. We don't have scrutiny on us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a psychological term called projection, which is where you kind of have shame and fear and guilt over stuff that's in your own your own crap, your own rotten stuff, as you would say. That then you project onto other people and you vent your anger at them and you scapegoat them honestly, as a way of offloading your own guilt and shame. And this is, this is honestly behind, I think, 80% of Instagram posts right now. It's so exhausting, you know? So that's not to defend the abuse of power. It's to say, man, can we have a little more humility to say a lot of this stuff exists in us? Mm-hmm. It's part of the human condition. We're broke. We're not, we're not secular humanists. We're followers of Jesus. And we understand that we come into this world fearfully and wonderfully made and deeply bent and broke. And we're not just wounded, as millennials are quick to point out. We're also wicked mm. at some level. And many of us don't want to believe that. Just live along a little bit longer. <laughs> you know, whether you want to call it self-defeating behavior or sin or whatever, man, there's just a part of us that is bent. And we need a little more humility to see, man, this isn't all of us. And those in power, I mean, my biblical theology is the problem is not that people have power. It's that People without character abuse power. And the solution is not to tear down power. It's good people to steward power on behalf of the powerless. Right. That's my right, basic because, take, which many would disagree well, with. Well, because uh, that, that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, cannot be true because Jesus had all yes. power. He had absolute power and did not corrupt. So we know yes. it's possible in his full humanity uh, for him to have not abused power. We know it's possible. And not just Jesus. Yeah. Look at a Nelson Mandela, who's an incredibly powerful person, literally changed the whole nation. Look at whoever, whoever your hero is, famous or not. Yeah, I agree. I do not think that statement's true. I, I don't think it jives at all with Genesis. I think, you know, um, power, it, 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 uh, it amplifies what's already mm. in you. It's a tool, like the phone. The phone amplifies what's all. When people are nasty on Instagram, that's realizing, oh, wow, or Twitter or whatever, that, that was in you. 
And it just came out in a really nasty way because something about the psychology of this this technology like lets it out in ways that it wouldn't come out if you were just chatting to somebody over coffee. So um, I, I think power, it amplifies what's already yeah. in you, which is why when good, just, humble people that view power uh, I, I mean, I'm a little sensitive to that. <laughs> As a person that many would say I'm in power because I'm a pastor at a church, I, I experience pastoring a church less as being in power and more as a form of suffering, hmm. you know, in love. It's, I mean, it's, it's not nearly as glamorous as maybe as it looks to a lot of people. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a pity party. That's Reality. just an honest yeah. appraisal. Like, I, I think that pastoring is suffering love. And uh, at least as I understand hmm. it. So all, all that to say... Yes, I agree with you. I think power amplifies what's already in us for good or for evil, which is why people must be formed. This is why you know there's a massive problem right now for millennials because we have extraordinarily high – like you know, somebody got really mad at me online the other day and they're like, you know, the thing about millennials is they will not accept the abuse of power. That's true and that's a great thing. Maybe previous generations didn't have the same – chutzpah or leverage or voice via the internet or whatever. And so they had to, they were more accepting of the abuse of power. Maybe, I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe, sure. But, you know, it's one thing to tear people in power down. Millennials have not remotely come even close to demonstrating that we as a generation can steward power better than right, those before us. Right. So we have incredibly high standards for those in power. Great. I'm for that. I have high standards as a Christian. But secular culture has little to no formational mechanism to create people who know how to steward power justly. And the previous mechanisms of the nuclear family, of church and religion, of educational institutions the way they used to be, have mostly fallen off, you know. And so now we have impossibly high standards at some level of almost perfection, no means of atonement or forgiveness or second, and no means of discipleship or formation. And I'm like, what? And people think we don't need religion. I'm like, oh my gosh, we need it now more than ever because we need good people to steward power in to do justice for those that don't have it in our society, you know? <sighs> Okay, we could talk all day about this issue. I can see that you get fired up like I do about this kind of conversation. I know, I'm, I'm a little soapboxy. No. I'm, I'm sorry, it's been a tender no, year. Yeah. And I, I, I care deeply about these issues of justice, but the utopianism of the secular humanist agenda, it's, I live in the yeah. center of it. It's just exhausting and it's sad. You know, a psychologist said to me recently, when you create a shame, a pride position, you create a shame position. Mm. And I think because there's such a strong pride position created both by social media where you present a false image of who you are to the world. It's a brand and a facade. It's not who you actually are. It's not an honest appraisal of you, all your warts. And then when you have these rightly very high moral standards for power, for justice, for racial justice, all of these things, you then create this overwhelming shame position. So there's all these people living with quiet shame because they know that their life doesn't actually measure up. Mm. Wow. And um, and there's so and they live in fear of getting attacked or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or who they actually are coming out and people seeing it and rejecting them and hating them and ostracizing them. And gosh, the need for atonement um, is greater than it's ever been right now. 
I want to pause for a moment because I recently have had the chance to visit a village in Thailand with compassion. And uh, I did that virtually because, well, we can't travel right now. But this virtual visit was actually like way more impactful than I thought it would be personally. I've been thinking about it ever since. I got the opportunity to meet graduates out of the program, like young adults who've come through this child sponsorship program. So maybe you've heard about child sponsorship, you probably have, and you've also kind of wondered, is this sort of out of date? Is this old school? Well, actually, no. Honestly, in my own experience and witnessing the impact of this in the lives of real people, it's amazing. And it still has an amazing opportunity for you to get involved in it. So Compassion Canada is helping to actually rewrite the stories of extreme poverty through their revolutionary child sponsorship model. They work exclusively with the global church. Compassion is dedicated to lifting children out of poverty in all its forms. But just like how I said I was on this visit to Thailand, I met the local pastors. I met the local church people who are doing this work. They they aren't advertising compassion necessarily. They're just advertising Jesus, if you could use those words. They're promoting Jesus and justice and his work in the lives of kids. And compassion sponsorship is the thing that helps make that possible. Um, so they're they're changing the way development works in all kinds of ways. And I've been able to see that. It's not just like your grandma's child sponsorship. It's life-changing, long-lasting relationships that impact a child, but also can change you. So through this relationship with the local church and caring sponsors, a child living in poverty is able to actually flourish, mind, body, spirit, while discovering their true value. I've seen this myself. So if you're looking to be part of something good, if you're looking to do something uh, to impact other people around you, not just yourself, if you want that slow growth, sponsor a child today and change a child's life for good. Visit compassion.ca slash good for more details, compassion.ca slash good. And that's down in the show notes. Okay. So I I guess I just, because we're coming to a close, I I don't want to go on, but without giving you a chance to talk about you have missed, just made a huge announcement recently. And I'm bringing this back to this word patient because, um, Mm. you made a big announcement recently about a shift you're making in your professional world. Um, uh, but, but I could imagine you knew about this and you were praying about it, that what the timing was of this long before it was, you know, uh, a public news thing. So, um, how did you know, maybe just even as a, as a, a short moment of mentorship to others who, you know, they say right now, lots of pastors are thinking about quitting and lots of people want to make career shifts because pandemic life's turned everything upside down. Everything's up for consideration and people are tired. Um, but for you under the tone of under that, that word patience, how did you know that this was the right moment for this change for your life, your church, your family, and maybe tell us then about what you're doing next? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, the short version is I've, uh, I am the pastor or one of the pastors, but the pastor for preaching and vision at a church in Portland that we planted, um, 18 years ago, this coming uh, summer, fall. And uh, for a very long time, I've had a sense that I would maybe serve the church better if I were not a lead pastor, but more in the role of a kind of teacher and writer and discipleship pastor. And for about uh, five years, I've had this dream of 
starting a nonprofit called Practicing the Way and creating discipleship resources for local churches, in particular those in post-Christian contexts. There's lots of conversation there, but much of the discipleship, like discipleship in the Western church is kind of abysmal overall because it's thought of as an optional, like extra Mm -hmm. thing for people who want it over on the side, rather as the dominant paradigm of following Jesus. And the discipleship resources that are out there, and there's some beautiful ones, tend to be um, kind of culturally dated, maybe from the 80s and 90s, tend to be contextualized to more kind of conservative culture than the the culture of a Toronto or a Portland or increasingly anywhere that people have phones and Wi-Fi, uh, which tends to be generationally more progressive, more secular, and more hostile yeah. to the way of Jesus, and also more busy and distracted and addicted to hurry. And uh, a lot of the kind of Western in general, this is one of the great challenge of, of, of the West, uh, a lot of their discipleship has been Cartesian, if you want to like pick a philosophical word, as in Rene Descartes, um, it's been like kind of about information transfer. So the thought has been teach people the Bible and basic Christian doctrine, and then they will grow and mature to become like Christ. And I think that that formula has not resulted in a high degree of healing and transformation mm-hmm. in a large number of mm-hmm. Christians. Um, because it's not body-based. It doesn't take into account your whole person. It doesn't take into account your habits. It assumes that spiritual disciplines are in your life rather than teaching you how to read scripture and pray and fast and rest and live in community. It assumes relational skills that many people don't have growing up with the breakdown of the nuclear family or in poverty or whatever. And um, it's not charismatic enough. I don't think it brings in the life of the Mm -hmm. spirit enough. It doesn't bring your past, your history, your traumas in and the need for healing. Um, There's wickedness, but there's also woundedness and both of them deform our soul. So there's a a lot of kind of, I think, missing pieces in Western discipleship. So basically what I want to give the best of my energies to in the years to come is is kind of creating a holistic, body-based way of Jesus discipleship turning those into resources, um, courses and practices, not just content, but resources that people as individuals, but small groups and local churches could utilize for discipleship or spiritual formation, whatever you want to call it. In particular, for those that are living in in the broadly kind of Western, secular, progressive, you don't have to be in a crazy Portland or Toronto, but just that broad kind of spectrum. That's kind of what I want to give myself to. So to answer your question, yeah, you know, this has been in my heart I'd say about 10 years. Mm. It's been a dream of mine. And eight years ago, I went on a sabbatical after a really hard, the one other really hard season in ministry other than 2020. And I almost did not come back. I I did not tell my church that, (laughs) but I almost didn't come back. Um, I almost took a job as a teaching pastor because I just did not want to lead a church anymore. And I wanted to focus more on teaching. But I just did not feel a release from the Holy Spirit. Mm. I felt like the Spirit said, it's not time yet. Come back. You need you have more to work to do mm. here. So, yeah, for the last eight years now, I've just been doing my best to serve and stay faithful. And I love our church. It's not about a lack of love for our church. It's more just the role has not felt like a great fit for me. And so I've just been doing my best to patiently wait and most of the time not so patiently wait. <laughs> Um, but I've kept my body in the place in patience, if not my spirit and mind until, you know, I felt like God would 
bring what he put in my heart to pass. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a long, the discernment process for why now is, is long and complex, but basically a number of our key leaders, elders that I've been processing this with very openly for years, mentors, kind of all came to me in the span of a week last spring in a kind of prophetic triangulation and basically said, hey, we know that you need to make this shift at some point out of the lead pastor role to do this work. We just sense this call on you. And we think that the backside of COVID might be the optimal Mm -hmm. time for you to make that shift for all sorts of reasons. We're in a kind of season of rebuilding as a church. It's going to be almost like replanting the church. Church will be different going forward. New building. Yep. Yeah. New, new cultural moment in our city. It will call, call for a different type of leader than the leaders of the past in a sense. So all that to say, um, and then at the same time, God brought in his incredible providence, a friend of mine who was a phenomenal pastor from Brooklyn, New York, who was willing to move his family and felt a call to step into where I've been serving the last 18 years. So, so it's just, it was one of those moments where we're just like, Oh my gosh, this is God. Like all of the pieces that were in my heart just came to pass. I have a little teaching I do out of the life of Joseph where I talk about dreams just through the, through the, the the biography of Joseph in Genesis. And my, the basic, let me give you the end, the, the pitch at the very end is that when God puts a dream in our heart, some kind of a vision of our future and our destiny before him and the kingdom. It's all, when it comes to pass, there's always a massive gap between when it comes up in our heart and when it comes to pass. And kind of the larger the dream, the larger the waiting period, the, the greater the call for patience. And the dream is always different, harder, longer, better. Mm-hmm. And it's always different than what we envision a little bit because it has less ego and more reality. It's always harder you know, we romanticize dreams in our mind, whether it's marriage or children or career or success, we romanticize. We think about all the pros and none of the cons. It's always longer, always takes like way longer than we think for it to come to pass most of the time. And it's always better in the sense of like once it's been stripped of the ego, stripped of our attachment, we don't need it anymore. We've died to self. We've experienced failure, patience, waiting, suffering, formation through it. It's so much better. So that's kind of my pitch. And so I'm, I'm hoping that will be true as the new venture, that it will be different, harder, longer, and better. Uh, amen. Well, would you, um, just as a blessing, would you pray for people listening um, for this fruit of patience yes. to um, be yes. produced in their life? Pray for us, please. Yeah. I invite you just to take a deep breath wherever you are in your car or Holding laundry or walking your dog or up early in the morning, just take a deep breath. Just ground your awareness in your body and your breathing and the moment, whatever you're suffering from right now, likely the moment right now itself is just fine, if not good. God, I just confess to you how far short I fall of this vision of patience, of love as patience and long-suffering. Lord, have mercy on me and all those who are listening. For most of us fall very short. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that your disposition toward us is compassion 
not anger. But God, we ask for more than just your compassion. We ask for your grace to slow our minds and our bodies down, to let go of the anger, the vitriol, the distraction, the running from suffering, the blame shifting and projection, to face the pain and the joy of life with peace as we live from that deep place where our life is hidden with Christ in God. We ask for grace to do this with joy. Amen. Amen. John Mark, thank you. I'm going to link below to where to find you, your books, all kinds of resources, and how to be uh, discipled in the way of Jesus. Thanks so much. Very kind. You bet. It's an honor. Thanks, John Mark, for such a great conversation. Share this episode with a friend. Pass it around to somebody on social media. Share the wealth. Share the wisdom of John Mark Comer. Thanks also to Compassion and Waybase for making this possible. It wouldn't be possible without them. So check out the links in the show notes. See how you can be involved in these amazing organizations. Next up on the podcast, we've got Danielle Koch, or maybe you know her as Oh Happy Danny on social media. She's got this huge Instagram following. She's an illustrator, an advocate. She's tackling huge subjects of justice, racism, all kinds of other things, but she's doing it through the lens of happiness, of laughter and joy. So we're talking to her next week about the fruit of joy. So can't wait to see you next week with Danielle Koch. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an